I have read that 45% of Americans typically set New Year's resolutions, and we're really close to that period of time, and maybe you're among them. Maybe you write out the little list and you have it on a sticky note or a three-by-five card or it's on your computer or on your desk. From what I've read, half of the resolutions made by people have to do with some kind of you know, self-improvement you know, program, maybe education or whatever. 38% of those who set resolutions made resolutions specifically related to their weight. Although I wasn't told in the survey, I'm pretty sure they wanted less of it, not more of it. 34% made resolutions regarding debt. I'm sure they wanted less of that. 31% made some sort of resolution regarding personal relationships. And those were kind of the big ticket items on this survey that I, I read about. I, I personally think making resolutions is an excellent application of Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 26, where we're told to give careful consideration to the path of our feet. Think about where you're going and where you'd like to be. It's an exercise worth doing prayerfully and thoughtfully. Many of you are aware of Jonathan Edwards. He began his own personal list of resolutions. In fact, he would later become a key leader in the Great Awakening, a time of great revival in American churches in the 1700s. Beginning in 1723, when he was 20 years of age, he began a list of resolutions. And for about a year, he added to the list until he got to about 70 of them. Here's one of them. Resolved. Never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. That pretty well takes care of everything, doesn't it? That'll serve as a rudder. Because he had such a, a wonderful theological understanding and would write volumes, he understood sanctification so well and he was so realistic in his presentation. He had several along those lines. Here's one of them. Resolved never to slacken my fight with my corruptions, however unsuccessful I may be. You'd think a leader would say, until I reach perfection and success. No, never to give up the fight no matter how unsuccessful I may be. And again, another one, resolved, if I should fall and grow dull, to repent of all I can remember when I come to myself again. I like that one. When I get back in my, my right mind, repent and get back following the list. Here's one more. I think this was a key to his success. Jonathan Edwards actually made a resolution to review his resolutions. Here it is. Resolved, to inquire every night as I'm going to bed where I have been negligent, what sin I have committed, where I have denied myself, that is, where I've done the right thing, and to do so thoroughly at the end of every week, every month, and every year. In other words, when he got into bed, he went through this mental list of uh, accountability, but at the end of the week, at the end of the month, at the end of the year, he got out the list and thoroughly reviewed his Resolutions may be one of our problems, maybe one of my problems is that I soon forget what I've resolved to do. I found it interesting in this survey summary that I've mentioned already that only half of the people who make resolutions are keeping them 30 days later. Only 40% are keeping them six months later. And the survey recorded that only 19% are sticking to them 
24 months later. I want to introduce to you in our series of studies a young man who made a resolution that would serve as a rudder for the rest of his life. But I want you to know before we dive in that his resolution and further resolutions are going to place him squarely in the midst of horrible conflict. In fact, they're eventually going to threaten his life. Because of his resolutions, he's going to live life for the most part alone. He'll have a few friends, but only a few. He's going to face incredible pressure from the very beginning to conform his entire life and walk away from his resolution. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the biography of Daniel. We'll spend five or six weeks touching the highlights in this book as we work through it. While you're turning, I'll eventually catch up with you. I want to set the stage for us as we look at this wonderful model of godly resolve. If you rolled the calendar back some 600 years before the birth of Jesus Christ, Egypt and Babylon would have been the two superpowers on the planet. In the year 605 BC, a young prince by the name of Nebuchadnezzar won a decisive victory over Egypt, and he gained control of what we refer to as not only Egypt, but the Holy Land and the people therein. Later that same year, his father, Nabopolassar, the king of Babylon, died, and Nebuchadnezzar rushed back to take the throne. Biblical history records for us, as well as ancient history, how he carried on his way back captives from Jerusalem, along with sacred vessels from the temple of God to install in the temple of his chief god, Marduk. Now, verses 1 and 2 of Daniel basically provide that information that I've just summarized. He wanted to express his thanks to Marduk. He's going to have his own Thanksgiving celebration. Thanks to Marduk, which they believed, of course, gave him the power to defeat not just the other people, but their gods, who evidently were inferior. And he also took those vessels because he's going to humiliate Jehovah by placing them in his temple, a god obviously inferior to his god. It'll be a few chapters later, by the way, that Nebuchadnezzar will come to understand that Jehovah really doesn't have any rivals. And he'll also discover that his victory had actually been prophesied a hundred years earlier by Isaiah. God intended to discipline his people through this period of captivity because of their persistent rebellion and idolatry. And it was prophesied as much. I like the way Warren Wearsby kind of summarized this in his wonderful little commentary on Daniel. He said that God evidently would rather have his people living in captivity in a pagan land than living like pagans in the Holy Land. So um, Nebuchadnezzar, like Alexander the Great after him, adopted the policy of using the most promising young people in his new empire and governmental service. He, he, wanted the, he, he wanted the best and the brightest minds, not just captured, 
but commissioned to serve him. Most Bible historians that approach the book of Daniel agree that somewhere in the neighborhood of 60 young people were taken to Babylon for this very purpose. Now, if you look at verse 3, you'll notice that all or most of them are from the royal line of Judah, which means they're sons of nobles. They've got royal blood flowing through their veins, leaders from the land of Israel. In verse 14, they're called youths. It's the Hebrew word yeladim, which puts them at about the age of anywhere from 13 to 17 years of age. Now, we're given six very brief descriptives of these young men. We're told that in verse 4, they were youths in whom was no defect. In other words, these guys are physical specimens. Nothing wrong with them. That's what Nebuchadnezzar wanted in his court. They're also described as good-looking, not just strong and healthy, but handsome, just as Israel chose a king based entirely on externals. Nebuchadnezzar was all about that too. He's all about image. He only wanted those serving him who were in great shape and were good looking. You'll notice the next one, he, he wants them to be intelligent. <laughs> he doesn't just want good looking guys. He wants good looking guys who can spell. Okay. Got to have some brains in that brawn. Okay. Number four, They also had to be endowed with understanding. Literally, they had to be, the Hebrew phrase is, knowers of knowledge. We're told also that they had to be discerning. This is a reference to being able to to gather data and, and correlate facts and come to the right conclusions. We're not sure what the testing was like, but they got high SAT scores when they entered, evidently. Number six We're told here in verse 4 that they had to be able to stand in the king's court. Now that's a reference to their their poise and their manners, which I thought was kind of humorous. I can imagine 14-year-olds and their manners, but they're going to grade them on these as, as well. But the manners and the customs certainly would be different. If you've traveled the world, you've recognized that. I've had several people come up after the services telling me about their own experiences. We just had one last weekend in Geneva, Switzerland, where manners were very, very different. We were told by the pastor and his wife, as we had dinner with them, that you always place both hands on the table. You always had them up on the table. And elbows were fine, too. And the bread, this was really odd, the bread was never put on your plate. It was placed directly on the table. No bread plates. You put your bread right on the, the table. And, and if you didn't, you would be implying to your hostess that her tablecloth was unclean. So elbows, hands, bread on... I mean, is this great or what? I, I, I wish my mother had been raised in Geneva. I'd have gotten a lot less cracking on my knuckles growing up. Well, obviously, Daniel and these others are going to learn a host of new manners that are different from anything they've ever seen. But this probably refers to just their bearing... Their, their, their poise, their, their social graces. If these young men had all six qualities, the last part of verse 4 informs us that they were inducted into the Babylonian Royal University. In other words, they weren't given slave duty. 
They were given scholarships, a free ride. Now what I want to do is work my way through with you this chapter. We're going to cover all of chapter 1 because we believe in miracles. And what I'm going to do along the way is I want to show you four, by the way of outline, four new life-changing events that have or, or, or will impact and challenge Daniel's life and maybe change his heart and his mind. And out of it, what you're going to find is, is you're going to find this brand new resolution that will serve as a rudder for the rest of his life. The first life-changing event that Daniel faces is that he is taken to a new world. He's taken to a new world. Frankly, it's difficult for us to imagine the impact of moving from the land of Judah and his boyhood home to the greatest, wealthiest, most resplendent place he'd certainly ever seen and even known to the ancient world. The hanging gardens of the terraced palace were among the seven wonders of the ancient world. Highly trained staff were used to tend these gardens 24 hours a day. The river Euphrates flowed through the city, and the banks of the river inside the city proper were, were beautifully walled and, and tiled with steps leading down at certain places to the water's edge, like like beautiful Venice. It would have been staggering in its beauty. The main entrance of the capital city was also one of the wonders of the ancient world. It was called the Gate of Ishtar, named after their chief goddess. They considered her the queen of heaven. The very gate has been excavated and rebuilt in the Berlin Museum, which they stole after World War, during World War II, and they're not giving it back, with its beautiful blue and gold tiles, dragons and lions crafted in patterns along this mosaic tiled wonder. His predecessors had used sun-dried bricks, but Nebuchadnezzar was the first to use fired bricks which then survived in the arid climate. And to this day, nearly 3,000 years later, these excavations can be seen as they were. And they're still stunning, aren't they? They boggle the imagination. They reflect the beauty and the wealth and the splendor of this ancient kingdom. In fact, keep in mind that Daniel would have walked through this very gate he would have seen what you're saying. I can't imagine his heart racing. Maybe behind his eyes he's hiding thoughts of, of utter amazement and intimidation and probably a sense of total hopelessness. I mean, if there was ever a time to doubt the, the superiority and the sovereignty of, of, of your God, your defeated God... It was now. 
and you're not even past the gate. In fact, to add to the propaganda of their immediate indoctrination, they would have paused just inside this gate, and they would have been shown, and their guide would have read to them the inscription. The inscription is in hieroglyphs, so you didn't need a picture. I'll just give you the translation. Here it is. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the pious prince, appointed by the will of Marduk, of prudent deliberation, having learned to embrace wisdom, who fathom the godly beings and pays reverence to their majesty, the untiring governor, the wise, the humble, yeah, right, the firstborn of Nabopolassar, the king of Babylon, am I. Wow. And where are you from? Oh, a little dust bowl back east. They would have walked through that gate and down what would open into this this main boulevard called the Processional Way. It was 150 feet wide, twice the width of this auditorium. Separated for two-way traffic with a landscaped median, kind of like out on Tryon Road, with sidewalks on either side, tiled, paved for pedestrian traffic. And these captives would have walked alongside tiled walls that have also been perfectly preserved and excavated on both sides of this processional way, stunning in beauty. They're they're covered with mosaics of palm trees stretching 30 feet into the air, and underneath there's this band of lions marching in single file underneath those palm trees. You take a closer look at the bottom of these tiled walls, and you can see how the lions were designed to look as if they're marching along with the pedestrian traffic and all of their strength, all of their splendor. Each lion is seven feet long, set against this backdrop of of blue tiles. Excavations actually reveal that their coloring varied somewhat, Color has faded. Some lions had white fur and yellow manes. Other lions had yellow fur and red manes. It's all part of sort of this stunning display of the grandeur and the wealth and the and the power of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar was somewhat obsessed with lions. He collected them along with other wild animals to show off his power, and he would periodically feed his enemies to them. These lions are going to make an appearance, by the way, in Daniel's life, although he doesn't know it at the time when he walks through this gate. They'll come about 70 years later. Can you just imagine Daniel and his friends walking through this massive gate down this tiled processional boulevard? I mean, this is not Kansas anymore, is it? This, is, this isn't little Jerusalem. This is Babylon the Great. Welcome to your new world. There's another new thing that's going to happen. Not only a new home, but they're about to begin a new education. 
Now, the king orders Ashpenaz, the headmaster, to begin this three-year university course. It's going to be a crash course. It's going to be taught by the top tutors in the land. Notice the last part of verse 4 again. Uh, They're to be taught the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. Now, obviously, the purpose of their education was to transform, to convert these Jews into Babylonians. They would have been inducted into the Babylonian mythologies of creation, the flood, the origin of mankind, the plurality of gods. They would have been taught by the Chaldeans. They were the cream of the Babylonian caste system. They were at the top of the heap. These were the wise men of old. This is the priestly caste who trained the king and the kings and crowned them. They were the diviners, the magicians. They were also the elite educators, the professors of of philosophy and astrology and architecture and agriculture and law and history and linguistics. And their goal here is, is again, really simple. To turn these backward, monotheistic Jewish boys into Babylonian polytheists. No matter if they were atheists at the end of it. But they were going to be turned away from Jehovah. Much like the educational system of our own culture, which is built on humanism and atheism, with many professors having as their chief end the destruction of what they would consider to be a rather crude, ignorant crutch called Christianity. I remember one college student coming up to me some time ago telling me that her professor openly admitted to her that one of his goals was to destroy the faith of Christians in his classroom. So like Daniel, this isn't anything new, by the way. Bombarded with both truths and errors. That doesn't mean you can't get a degree from a secular university. But it does mean that you'd better learn like you eat cherries. You swallow the good stuff and do what? You spit out the seeds. And you got to do that all the time. That's not new. In fact, just last week I watched a program about planet Earth. I love to watch those kind of programs, although you might as well turn the volume down because they don't get the point. But at any rate, the pictures are staggering. And, and this woman is gushing in the program about how amazed you know everybody is that planet Earth is so perfectly suited to support all kinds of life forms in these different pictures of animals and just glorious stuff. And she's talking about how it's amazing that we're at the right distance from the sun so that we are neither fried nor frozen. And I'm saying, yeah, sister, go on. You're, you go on. Keep going. And she then said, the amazing thing is that our planet, unlike any other that we've been able to discover, is covered for the most part with water, which is critical to the, susten- the sustaining of, of, of life in all of its form. And I'm going, yeah, go on. And then she said, and we don't know where it came from. And oh, brother, the camera shifted to a guy standing on the bank of a river some educated guy who was explaining the likelihood that millions of years ago, we're not sure how many, throw a few million in there, but millions of years ago, Earth was bombarded by thousands of asteroids, each of them carrying water, which filled up the lakes, rivers, and seas. That's great. I love it. 
Well, don't fault them. I mean, frankly, when you think about it, you've got to come up with something, right? We know you get nothing out of nothing. Something had to happen. See, Daniel has been taught creationism from his childhood. Now that's all going to be changed. The Babylonians could actually say to him, look, we've got our theories too. They did. They could even say, we have our, our tree of life. And they did. They could say, we, we've got our view of a flood. And they did. We've got our pantheon of gods. And from them we came and it wasn't one god, it was many. Why in the world do you think that all of this could come from one god? And our gods, boys, are obviously superior to your God because you're here. A new world, a new education. They're even given, thirdly, new names. This is all part of the psychological and the mental reprogramming. This is a clever tool. Look at verse 7 here. We're told that the commander of the officials assigned new names to them. And to Daniel, he assigned the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. Now these original Hebrew names have been given to them at birth to reflect the glory of God in any number of his names provided it was, it was going to now change to remind them every time their name is called, your God is history. So Daniel, Danny El, from Elohim, means God is my judge. His name has changed to Belteshazzar, Bel being one of their chief deities. You're now the prince of Bel. Hananiah means God is gracious. And we're going to change that to Shadrach. That means illumined by the sun god. Again, this is designed to directly contradict the meaning of of their original name. Under the gracious care of God. No, now you're under the gracious care of the sun god. Mishael's name had the meaning, who is like God. We're going to change that to Meshach. Who is like Venus. Some believe a derivative of Ishtar, a goddess of sensual love. Every time his name is called, who's like my God now? Who's like this pagan goddess of sensual love? Imagine how that stung his ears every time he heard it. Azariah's name, which means the Lord is my helper, is changed to Abednego. I worship Nego, Nebo, the god of wisdom. And wouldn't these boys be wondering now... I mean, were our old names for real? Was it all make-believe? Is our God really gracious and, and all-wise and capable of, of caring for us and all-powerful? It doesn't look like it, does it? Imagine the pressure to just kind of throw it all away in this new world, being tutored in new ways, daily reminded that Jerusalem and, and, and Jehovah are relics of the past every time they're called by their new name. There's another I want to point out to you. 
we'll just simply call this new temptations. New temptations. Because they were. They hadn't encountered this before. In fact, the rest of chapter 1 simply details this one issue. You could say it this way, to eat or not to eat, that is the question. I mean, basically, that's what they've got to struggle with. They're going to eat the king's food, drink his wine, or not. Now, the key to understanding what happens is what really provides us with a theme verse for the entire book. In fact, if you're looking for a verse that speaks of Daniel, it would be verse 8. You get that verse, you get Daniel. Notice there. But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself... And then you can just add anything you want on the end of it. But at this point in time, that would mean he's not going to eat the king's choice food and he's not going to drink his wine. In other words, Daniel and his friends are going to meet these new temptations and guess what they're going to do? They're going to come up with a brand new resolution. Resolved. Never to defile ourselves with the king's food or wine. Well, what's wrong with that? couple of problems. First, the food would have been unclean meat, non-kosher meat. The Jews were forbidden to eat under the existing laws of Moses. They never had to say no to that stuff before. But now can you imagine their first lunch banquet, the buffet line, it would have rivaled Golden Corral, probably would have exceeded it. I mean, it's all there. You imagine pork products and and shellfish and, and, and meat offered to idols. And surely in this new world it's okay to dig in because if you notice, everybody else is digging in except Daniel and his, his friends. And I could just hear, you know, hey, Daniel, you got to try this honey-baked ham. This is great stuff. you got to try this shrimp salad. Is God good or what? Historians tell us the king's wine was poured out first as an offering to their gods. So libation to drink was to participate in their pagan feast. And so, so Daniel and his three friends are sitting there and they will not touch it and they're hungry and this is the meal and they're sitting there with their stomachs growling in protest, arguing, I'm sure, with their minds. Brand new. They'd never had to turn any of this stuff down before. Think about it. They'd been walking through Jerusalem and they smelled bacon frying in the air. Somebody was in deep trouble, right? I never had to say no to a ham sandwich. This is brand new. And they resolved to say no. Maybe you're facing a brand new temptation. Maybe it's just surfaced recently. Maybe it's power in some promotion. You're tempted now in the way you treat others. Maybe it's unexpected flattery and that's a new temptation. Or maybe undeserved criticism. Perhaps it's money or laziness or bitterness or lust. Spurgeon wrote this week in his devotional, you look out a window and a brand new corruption springs into existence. Brand new. These boys resolved to say, 
no, which now throws the high school principal or the college, I should say, university president into a flurry. He, he can't have four starving students on his hands. In the sons of nobles, the king's going to have his head. This is when Daniel offers a compromise to the headmaster. Look down at verse 12. Please, again, very respectful. He's not trying to burn down the cafeteria, you know, or get rid of the headmaster. Just please test your servants for 10 days. And let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be observed in your presence and the appearance of the youths who are eating the king's choice food and deal with your servants according to what you see. Here's the test. And man, is this a test or what? Give us vegetables to eat for 10 days? Vegetables and water? Vegetables. From, from the word zeroim. Plants from the garden. I mean, this is lettuce. This is lima beans. You know what they are? Sawdust covered with cardboard. (laughs) Give me 10 days of that and I'll die. This was a plan that I would have never conceived of. Green peas. You know how I love those. It's been a while since I've mentioned it. You might be new. My wife would slip a little can of green peas into a casserole, and at the end of dinner, the casserole would be gone, and the little pile of green peas would be right there. They were not raptured up. They are unbelievers. I left them right there. <laughs> My wife would say to me, after the, you're, 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 you're giving a bad example to the kids, and I'd say, don't get over it. <laughs> she didn't think that was funny either, but at any rate, can you imagine? These guys are teenagers. They're always hungry. Like, they don't eat. They graze, right? You raise teenage boys, two, three gallons of milk a week. Now my wife and I buy a quart, and it spoils before it's gone. After the third day, they're probably saying to Daniel, what were you thinking? I mean, why not 10 days of breadsticks and Alfredo sauce, or 10 days of lasagna, or 10 days of spaghetti, or something? Why, why in the world? I want you to notice something miraculous. Maybe this is why God superintended his thoughts. And he said, let us just have raw vegetables, maybe cooked, just plain. Give us salad. Look at verse 15. At the end of 10 days, their appearance seemed better, and they were fatter than all the youths. Wait a second. You go on a salad diet so that you can what? Lose weight. You don't gain weight eating carrots. You don't, you don't gain weight eating salad. You, you at least stay the same, but, but you, you lose weight. It says here, don't miss this, and they were fatter. Literal Hebrew means they were fatter. <laughs> they were fatter. They gained weight. That was miraculous, which was the point. You see, God is distinguishing these four because did you notice the tragedy of that statement? They're fatter than all the other Jewish boys. That had discarded their faith at the gate of Ishtar. See, God is at work vindicating their resolution. Verse 17, if you're wondering, 
tells us that God clearly was giving them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. I mean, here they are thrown into this university system and they're getting A pluses. It wasn't for them to get all swelled up about it, just like for any of you. Whatever talents, whatever gifts, whatever intelligence, quotient, what you got on your SATs, yes, hard work, yes, discipline, yes, study, and then God gets the glory. He made you adept at those subjects. Because he has a reason, a purpose for all of that. Graduation day arrives now. Verse 18 Notice that. Then at the end of the days, which the king had specified for presenting them, in other words, three years now are up. This is pomp and circumstance. The band is playing. Here they come marching. They're going to get a personal interview with the king because it tells us, verse 19, the king personally talked with them. He questioned them. And out of them all, Not one was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's personal service. You know what that means? They graduated, and the king personally hired them into his cabinet. They resolved. And in that collaboration, God vindicated. Why? Because he had a reason. These boys are now inside the system And are they ever going to shine? Let me make three quick observations from this example before we dash out of here and go to Olive Garden and eat something we shouldn't eat. Okay? Let me give you three very quick ones. (laughs) Number one, resolving to follow Christ means that you refuse to allow your culture to rewrite your character. You ever thought about how easy it would be to rationalize? After you walk through that gate, down the boulevard, Reynolds Showers, wonderful little commentary on Daniel. He teaches and works with friends of Israel. He provoked my thinking with some of his thoughts. He said this. He said, it'd be so easy to rationalize by telling themselves, quote, well, under normal circumstances, God's law is to be obeyed, but these aren't normal circumstances. Or they could have rationalized, God is to blame for this. If he hadn't put us in this awful predicament, we wouldn't have to break his law to survive. It's his fault. Or they could have said, if we disobey the king, it might cost us our lives. And in God's value system, the preservation of life is of greater consequence than obeying him. Sounds like great theology. Or they could have just justified their sin by saying, and I like this one, if we eat the king's food and drink his wine, enter into the pagan festival, we'll be placed in government posts and think of the great testimony and impact we could have for God in such an influential position. Pass the ham. Dig in. And all of them did. Except these four. I love Jonathan Edwards' resolution number 61 that directly countered this idea of justifying our sin and rationalizing. I love the way he put it. He said it this way, resolved that I will not give way to that which I find relaxes my mind from being fully fixed on my conviction, whatever excuse I may have for it. Then that cut right to the heart of who we are. I mean, we can justify 
anything. We can even make our compromise sound spiritual. Not Daniel and his friends. And maybe you would think, come on. I mean, if we were there to counsel. It's just food. It's just food. It's just a little thing. I mean, a little shrimp salad, for goodness sake. Have you ever thought about the fact that Jesus Christ never said whoever can be trusted in big things can be trusted in little things? No, he said whoever can be trusted in little things can be trusted in big things. They passed the test. Resolving to follow Christ means you refuse to allow your culture to rewrite your character. In other words, a new home does not have to create in you a new heart. Secondly, resolving to follow Christ means that you choose to follow God without guarantees. And I don't want you to miss this. There, there's no voice whispering in Daniel's ear, Daniel, look, you, you, you follow me and I'll make sure you get hired by the king. You follow after Jehovah and you'll graduate valedictorian. You'll get the promotion. You follow after me and I'll make sure your life works out. Guess what happens? You follow God and life doesn't work out. And then you wonder, like they would have wondered, is our God really the true and living God? No voices from heaven, no angelic messengers in the clouds, no, no guarantee preceding this resolution. In fact, they didn't know if they wouldn't be executed. Don't ever forget, Daniel will never return home again. He will die in Babylon in his 90s. Number three, resolving to follow Christ means that you refuse to make the multitude your model. For the most part, Daniel and his friends are going to stand alone. Uh, they refuse to be conformed to their world, to follow the crowd. It, it's interesting to me, though, as I have read and reread verse 19, the implication that these four young men were the only ones to receive a government post. They made their resolution, God determined their occupation. And instead of being changed by this impressive capital, this empire of Babylon, they will change Babylonians from the king all the way down for the glory of God. 